Open your Bibles, if you will, to Isaiah 65, if you can believe it, as we uh, are about to hear the second to last sermon in our series on the book of Isaiah. And uh, we announced uh, uh, roughly this time last year that we would, uh, or about a year ago, that we'd be doing this in one year. And uh, many of you doubted that it would be possible, and I doubted that it would be possible, and yet here we are. And I want to thank, uh, just as we head into the God's Word, uh, Brian and the whole little mini orchestra that we had serve us uh, so well. Amen. Amen. I, I, I believe it was Peter Kreft who said that I know God exists because the words, the works of Johann Sebastian Bach exist. And essentially what the argument is there, because there's beauty, it's a witness to the reality of God. And what a great blessing that we can have people giving us this kind of musical beauty to remind us of the glory of God. I want to say just a brief word without deprecating the amazing work of all of the sisters, uh, that men, if you can sing in the choir, you ought to. And if you can... And if you can play an instrument, you ought to. The last thing we would ever want to communicate is that uh, music is a women's sport. That would be the last thing we would ever want to communicate. That's In right. fact, uh, can I get an amen, Pastor Ward? Okay. And uh, it's an amazing thing, actually. Uh, male and female singing with a soprano, alto, tenor, and bass is actually one of the most beautiful witnesses we can give to the glory and beauty of gender in a culture that's awfully confused about that reality. So if you can sing men, you ought to. And if you can play an instrument, we would love for you to as well. In all kind of caveats about how you don't actually have to, but uh, please do. We would love to see more and more of our brothers uh, doing that. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. Uh, as you turn there, I'll tell you one more thing. Good news in our family. As we speak, uh, my oldest daughter, Jordana, is getting on a plane in uh, Maputo, Mozambique, and we're looking forward to having her home tomorrow around supper time. So thank you for your prayers over these months as she's been serving uh, there with one of our IMB families. Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. This whole passage is future-oriented. Much of it, if not all of it, looking forward to the future and eternal state of those who believe in Jesus. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. No more shall be heard in, this, in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall be the days of my people. Shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Father, we come before you and ask you desperately but expectantly that you would come by your Holy Spirit 
and give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation into our eternal hope. We pray that you do this even for the most disinterested, the most hardened, even the most cynical, Lord, that you would come and speak your word to the very depths of their being. Lord, I pray that you do this in Jesus' name. Amen. For a lot of people, Christmas can be a depressing time. And you can understand why. A Christmas time is often family time. But when members of your family have died, or you are estranged, or divorced, or things just in the home are strained, Christmas time is a season when mourning and loss can cast long shadows over our souls. And I think that the way we celebrate Christmas in America makes all of this worse. Because the primary feelings that we aim to stir in our souls around Christmas time, in, a, in American Christmas, the primary feeling we focus on is nostalgia. Nostalgia, as one dictionary put it, is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past. For the past typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. Christmas music and Christmas marketing are geared to turn the nostalgia meter in our souls all the way up to 100. The radio stations get us dreaming of a white Christmas or, if you follow Paul McCartney, simply having a wonderful Christmas time. Advertisements offer us products um, that will fill a child with wonder and maybe rekindle some wonder in our souls as well. Norman Rockwell paintings remind us of a simpler time that Christmas is supposed to take us back to. But unfortunately, nostalgia actually makes mourning worse. Nostalgia actually puts salt on the wound of sadness. Nostalgia looks back and highlights what you lost or wishes for a past that honestly never even existed. Nostalgia makes us long for realities that are only getting further and further away. Nostalgia sets our affections on memories, affections that have been ripped out of our hands as the future moves us further and further away from the past. I think nostalgia with its focus on wistful longing for the past, is one of the reasons Christmas can be so depressing for so many people. The biblical focus of Christmas doesn't make mourning worse. The biblical focus of Christmas comforts those who mourn. It doesn't sink people further into further into depression. It actually points forward into the future where all those who mourn will have every tear wiped away. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, it wasn't so He could set up a nostalgic scene around the manger. He wasn't born for a photo op. He had come to destroy death. To live a never-before life, a life that had never been lived before. A perfect life that would be offered in sacrifice for others. He came to offer His life for others on the cross. That focus on Christmas time doesn't bring your loved ones back. It doesn't erase every divorce or every painful memory. But it does promise a time when every grief will be forgotten. Every tear will be wiped away. Every meal around the table with your family will actually be enjoyable instead of just something you imagine might be enjoyable. Biblical Christmas doesn't aggravate mourning with nostalgia. It heals those who mourn with hope. The longer I live and pastor this particular congregation, I see our tremendous need for hope. Just this week, I've spoken extensively with four families whose children are not doing well, not walking in wisdom, in some cases not walking in the faith. I know and I'm praying for two families where their child is having severe medical problems that disrupt every area 
of their family life. I've spoken to a sister who has felt neglected by the church. And on the flip side, I've reached out four times to a brother who won't return my phone calls. And I'm just one pastor out of 16. And all the people I just mentioned only add up to a couple dozen out of 600 members. There is always a lot of sorrow among the people of God. If we were to go around this room and to ask about what sorrows you are experiencing or what sorrows you've been exposed to, we would be here at least until Christmas reporting all of the different bitternesses that God has brought into our lives. The Christmas season ought to remind us that the future for all of us is full of hope. It's actually going to get better. This may actually be the worst point in your life. Because I can tell you this, for the Christian, as one person put it, the future is always bright. Things are always getting better. All that we have to look forward to is going to be better than what we experience in this world that fills us with so much weeping and mourning. In our passage, though it doesn't focus on the incarnation, Jesus coming in the flesh, it focuses deeply on the eternal joy that Jesus was going to bring to His people. And it's that joy that I want to focus on this morning. I just want to recount to you all that's coming your way, church. Believer, I want to, believers, I want to tell you all the things that is going to make your eternity so very happy. Think about this. If you live to be 120 years old, an awfully long time, in the scope of eternity, it won't even be like the time between your birth and your first diaper change. Eternity will fill the ages and the years of the people of God. First notice in this text that we will spend eternity in a new creation. We will spend eternity in a new creation. Verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Notice this, that what God is planning for the future is not something unrecognizable to us today. It's not something foreign. It's not another dimension. It's not, oh, I used to know how to live in a world of sky and grass and mountains and trees, and then I entered the other side. That's not the biblical picture of heaven at all. It's something very familiar. It's a new heaven and a new earth, which means you're supposed to fundamentally be able to picture what's coming. Very often when you talk about Christians, talk to Christians, they're not excited about heaven because they can't imagine it because they've got it in their mind that it's something utterly different than what we've experienced in this life. But no, no, no. It is something very similar to what we've experienced in this life. It is a new heaven and a new earth with food and wine and drink and all of the good things that fill this life with goodness now. What makes it new is that sin has been utterly eradicated. Do you ever have a favorite shirt? The kind of shirt you could like be casual in and be dressy in, and then all of a sudden this perfect shirt that was always just the perfect shirt for every occasion gets a stain right in the middle. And you, you, you remove it a lot, but not enough for it can ever be the perfect shirt again. It's always got that almost stain right in the middle. And if you could just get it out, it would be the perfect shirt again. That's how God will make the world new. He'll take this beautiful world of mountains and, and trees and skies and people, and he'll, he'll destroy the one thing destroying the planet, sin. When Peter quotes this very verse from Isaiah chapter 65, he says in 2 Peter, according to God's promises, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what makes it different. That all the sin is burned out, but all that is good remains. So heaven you ought to think of as something familiar, except with all the spoiling stains gone. John, uh, the writer of the book of Revelation, finishes the Bible with a book, with a vision of heaven that comes right out of Isaiah 65. Let me read it to you. Then I saw 
a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. You might be going, the sea is no more, Ryan. I thought you said it was going to be just like this earth, but if there's no sea, that's very different. Well, he's speaking poetically. We know there'll be water in heaven because we're told about a river of life that, that, that uh, uh, really feeds a tree for the healing of the nations. There'll be water. But the sea, in John's mind, was an image of chaos, an image of tumult. And basically what we're being told is there will be beautiful creation minus all the chaos, minus all the drama, minus all the difficulty, minus all the sin. And I saw, he says, a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. pictures heaven as a holy city. A new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, there are few things on the planet that spend more time trying to make themselves look good than a bride on her wedding day. She calls her one friend who knows just how to do hair and her other friend who knows just how to do makeup and there's been a large selection process for just the right dress. And we're told that heaven will kind of have that kind of attention to detail. That it will be God having prepared a place for us to live with the same kind of preparation that a bride gives her own self on her wedding day. That's where we're going to live forever. Some of you have moved into neighborhoods and you look at different features of the neighborhood and you think, man, no city planners were involved in the process of putting this together. In fact, I don't think anyone, maybe a committee designed this. But the new Jerusalem will be designed by God as a bride perfectly adorned for the pleasure of her husband. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be their God. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Imagine all the things in this life that scream, you're so close to satisfaction without all the things that take it away. Then you're getting close to what it looks like to live in a new heavens and a new earth forever and ever. Second, notice bad memories will be gone. This is very precious. Bad memories will be gone. He says first, Isaiah 65, 1, that he makes a new heaven and new earth. And then if you look at the uh, end of that very verse, it says, for the former things shall not be remembered. And if you look back to verse 16, you might even see, because the former troubles are forgotten. God plans to take away our bad memories. I'm not sure that that will mean that we have no memory of the things on earth, but more than all the stains of sin will be gone from our memories. As John Oswald puts it, all the ways in which sin has stamped this world with its own deformed image will be wiped away, not only from reality, but even from memory. They will not, it says, come to mind. On a recent trip, my family and I listened to the life story of World War II Air Force Captain Louis Zamperini. Am I saying that name right? Louis Zamperini, uh, who went down in his plane in World War II, spent, I think, five weeks on the ocean in shark-infested jungles. Uh, jungles. Ocean. <laughs> my son says, very scary jungles. But that was nothing compared to then being brutally, physically, and psychologically tortured in Japanese prison camps. During his months and months of torture, you can't help but be blown away by his strength, uh, his resilience, his stamina, his sheer will to live. But as strong as he was, and as long as he held it together, when he was rescued, 
and then returned to civilian life, he was plagued by anger, outbursts of wrath, night terrors. He battled severely with what has sometimes been called war neurosis, shell shock, soldier's heart, and in our own generation, PTSD. Many men and women who've seen combat, lost friends, seen atrocities, committed atrocities, now find themselves with haunted minds that can be set ablaze with fear and terror at the slightest provocation. Of course, there are many things that can be done to help such people, such brothers and sisters even here, but nothing will help more than God wiping all of those memories away, all of those tears away. All of those memories will someday never come to mind. You won't be able, you won't be spoiled for civilian life forever. Soon those memories that taunt, that haunt some dear saints will be wiped all away. The same could be said for pornography. Many have burned images in their mind they wish they could erase. As someone who first saw pornography when I was five and who was not saved till they were in their 20s, I want to tell you, by fleeing those things and thinking on what's good and true and lovely, you can get significant victory and tremendous distance from those thoughts in this life. But let me tell you, there's a time coming when the most demented, perverted thing you ever opened your eyes to will be remembered no more. And to those who are abused, who've stuffed wicked, unimaginable abuse deep down into your memories only to find they keep coming up, there is coming a day when those memories will be gone. And if you're someone who's had a terrible relationship with someone, terrible sexually or terrible abusively or terrible anger at one another, now you are both saved. How will you get along in heaven? Will you need to be on opposite sides of the New Jerusalem? Maybe go to different services? No, the former things will no longer come to mind. It's a very precious promise. Third, we will be glad in God, and God will be glad in us. We will be glad in God, and God will be glad in us. Instead of remembering our sinful past, verse 18 says, but be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create in Jerusalem, to create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem. That's God speaking. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. Don't skip over this promise. We will be glad and rejoice in what God creates. That's actually more radical than you might think. We will be glad and rejoice in the things God creates. Why is that so amazing? Because what we tend to do with the things God creates now is idolize them. Whether it's nature, or spouses, or family, or food, we tend to idolize those things with a gluttonous idolatry. But there will come a time when God lays out all of creation's bounties and we simply enjoy them for God's sake. It is a gift to get something and then to actually be able to enjoy it. Think of how many times you've had a perfect sunny day or a perfect day at home and yet some stain on your conscience ruined all your enjoyment of everything good. There will come a day when everything God gives, you will be able to enjoy. As one theologian put it, when you want to eat some food, you don't just need a can, you need a can opener too. And God intends us both to give us a can of goodness and the can opener to open it so that we can actually enjoy the good things that are put in front of us all the days of our eternal lives. And on top of that, there'll actually be good people there. People ruin everything. <laughs> Me and you included. But God will create a Jerusalem. The central city of this new creation will be a joy. And look at it. It says there in the passage, her people are created to be a gladness. People are rarely a long-term gladness to us. We get married, and then we need counseling to stay together. 
We have children, but if they're not godly, those children become a grief that touches every day of our lives. We pick a nice neighborhood and wind up with bad neighbors. Or we can't afford to be in a good neighborhood and we get what we paid for. But in heaven, every neighborhood will be full of perfectly Christ-like saints. I mean, literally, everyone knows, have you been down there? Yeah, there's good people down there. Have you been over to that part of the neighborhood? Yes, I have. There's some good people down there. They're a lot like Jesus. Like, and by a lot like, I mean perfectly like Jesus. Think about this. God will actually enjoy every person in heaven. Do you see that in the passage? Make sure you see that in the passage. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. God will, he's going to like you being in heaven. You're not going to be the kid in the corner. You're not going to be the last kid picked on the team that he wishes he didn't have to pick. He will delight in you being there. Now think about this. Before we were Christians, God is universally displeased with us. All of our righteousness is as filthy rags. Every moment of our existence provokes His wrath. Then He covers us in the righteousness of Christ. He saves us. And He delights in us for Christ's sake. Our, our status before God, our standing before God is that we stand in Christ. And He delights the little beginnings of Christ-likeness that are in us. But we all know there's still much that displeases Him about us. Yes, we have a perfect standing. And yes, He delights to see every measure of grace that's coming up in our lives. But the fact is, there's a reason He disciplines us that we might share in His holiness. Because we don't fully share in His holiness this side of heaven. There are things that displease Him. There are ways that we can, to use the language of Ephesians, grieve the Holy Spirit. But by the time you get to heaven, you will have seen Jesus. And the thing about seeing Jesus face to face is that you become exactly like Jesus when you see Him face to face. You ever notice how married couples start to look like each other? Well, there's something eternal going on there. When we see our bridegroom's face, we will be just like Him. And when we're just like Him, we will be the most delightful thing God has ever seen. Remember what He calls His Son? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that will be His chorus over us for all eternity. He will delight over us, Zephaniah says, with loud singing. And you won't ever do anything that displeases Him. You won't ever have a bad day. You won't ever slip up. You won't ever be tempted to slip up. You will have nothing but a full orientation to do whatever He pleases. And everything available to do will be things that please Him. And every single act and attitude that ever forms in our soul will only broaden the smile on God's holy face. We will be glad in God. And God will be glad in us. Fourth, there will be no more sirens and no more calls to 911. If you look at verse 19, the last half, it says, no more shall be heard in it. That is in heaven, in the new Jerusalem, in the new heavens, the new earth. The sounds of weeping and the cries of distress. Weeping is everywhere in this world. When the mother hears the police sirens blare and learns her son has been shot, when a young wife learns her husband has been unfaithful, when the tornadoes roar and you crawl out of your house but your loved one doesn't, when a mother and father are yelled at and dishonored by the child they love, when the Spirit gives a Christian a fresh look at the depth of their sin, we weep and feel distress. And all of these create weeping and distress, but not for long. 
no more shall be heard in it the sound of weeping and the cry of distress. You know, there are some jobs I can see immediately transferring over into heaven. Farmers, managers, builders. It's easy to see what they do going straight from earth to heaven. But doctors, police, pastors, I think we're going to have to pursue a new vocation. There will be no more need for anything that's dealing purely with the distressing, tear-producing effects of the fall. But I don't care. Retrain me for whatever. As long as you can be there, enjoying the glory of God. Fifth, there will be extremely long life. There will be extremely long life. Now I have to tell you before I read these verses, they are the center of a lot of end times debate. I don't know if you ever had this experience uh, during COVID where you met someone and you only ever met them with their mask on. And then at some point in time, they pulled their mask down. You're like, that's not where I thought that was going. <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and uh, so that's how this sermon is going to be. You, you thought it was going one way, but now it's going a completely different direction because we are in a verse here that is one of the most misunderstood, or not misunderstood, I'll just say hard to understand. I'll just call it hard to understand. That's more neutral. One of the most hard to understand verses in all of Isaiah chapter 65. Let's read the verses and then you'll understand why I need to spend some time explaining them to us. It says there in verse 20, No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. On one hand, these verses are very encouraging. No more crib death. No more premature deaths. No men dying of heart attacks in their 40s. No, no all men will fill out their days. In fact, what we're told here is that it will be so normal that a young man lives to at least a hundred years that if a sinner died before they were a hundred, you would look at them as having a cursed life. Now if you live to be 100, the president sends you a letter and everyone tells you you're blessed. But then 100 would be like, man, you kind of must have been a bad guy. This sounds like good news to us, but in the context, it seems strange. Wait, so in the new creation, people die? After all the tears dry up, we might have to cry again? How does this work? Well, to really explain it, I need to introduce you to three schools of thought when it comes to the end times. Those three schools of thought are premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. And I'm just going to tell you this. The Sunday before Christmas, at the last half of the sermon, you should never try this at home. <laughs> but here we go. Those three schools of thought are premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism. If you understand a little of these three schools, and I should say that all of these positions are held by true believers. In fact, true believers in this very room. But if you understand these three schools of thought, you can see how people make sense of this difficult passage. So first let me explain premillennialism. Premillennialism. Classic premillennialism believes there will be an eternal state and in that eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, so you can kind of equate eternal state, new heaven and new earth. In that eternal state, there will be an eternal period where sin is gone, death will be gone, we will live with Christ forever. If we're believers, uh, and if we're not believers, we'll be banished to hell forever. Premillennialists believe that um, the same thing that amillennialists and postmillennialists believe about that eternal state, all three of these groups agree. Anyone hear that? We're emphasizing similarities here first. Premillennial Christians, amillennial Christians, postmillennial Christians, these three different ways of viewing the end times, they all believe that it all pans out the same, which is why sometimes you may have heard someone call themselves a panmillennialist. They believe it'll all pan out in the end. The end result for every believer who believes the Bible is 
There's an eternal heaven, an eternal hell. That eternal heaven is a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. Sin-free, death-free, pain-free. And that eternal hell is eternal punishment with weeping and gnashing of teeth. The premillennial believer sees a thousand-year period between where we are now and that eternal state. You follow me? Between where we are now, after Jesus died on the cross, rose from the dead, and that eternal state, there's going to come a millennium, a period of a thousand years. And Jesus is going to come, now this is where it gets really fun, pre the millennium. He's going to come before the millennium. So you're walking through history, just as we are now. Jesus returns. And when He returns, He'll have a thousand-year reign where He literally reigns as the King of David in Jerusalem over a world full of resurrected believers and unresurrected unbelievers. At the end of a thousand years, He will judge the world and usher in the eternal state. So the premillennial believer, everyone know that? You got that one mastered? Your confidence is inspiring. <laughs> the premillennial believer looks at Isaiah 65 with people living to be 100, and it's wonderful, but then dying. He says, that's not the eternal state. That's going to happen in that millennium. That millennium will be a wonderful season, better than life is now. Jesus is president, not anyone else. And in that time, there will be longevity like we've never seen, but still death. And after that thousand-year state, there will be an eternal state where how much death will there be? Zero. Amen. So that's premillennialism. Amillennialism is a little different. Amillennialism is a little different. Do we need to stand up? We good? Everyone stand up. Everyone stand up. There you go. Stretch out. Follow Sam. Sam's got some stretching exercises he wants to show us. There you go. Thank you, brother. Have a seat. Keep your blood flowing. All millennialism. Premillennial Christians are saying Jesus will come back and then there'll be a literal thousand-year reign. All millennials say there's no literal thousand-year reign. There's none of that. No literal millennium. Like atheists say there is no God, and like apolitical people say they're not into politics, all millennialists are saying there's no millennium. Okay, so all millennialists, they go to the classic premillennial text. They go to the text that's just classic for premillennialists, and they read it a different way. Let me show you what I mean. So Revelation 20 is that classic passage. The only time in the Bible we actually have this word or this idea of a thousand years, this, where it's spelled out. There'll be this millennium. There'll be this thousand years. And the amillennialist reads this text differently than the way their premillennial brethren read it. Here's the passage. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into a pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Okay, so here you are. You're a premillennial Christian, and you read uh, Revelation 20, and you go, what's that saying? It's saying that sometime in the future, there will be a literal thousand years where it'll be different than now. Satan will be bound. And at the end of that thousand years, Christ will come back. There'll be an Armageddon kerfuffle, and then the eternal state will begin. If you're all millennial, you look at that and you go like this. Listen, this is the book of Revelation. We don't need to be taken thousand years literally. 
A thousand years is this whole age. It's just a, a big comprehensive number to say this period of time. And we're living in it right now. Now is the time when the, the devil is bound, when people are getting saved, when more and more people are coming into the kingdom of Jesus and getting saved. So the premillennialism person says, that's going to happen really literally in the future, thousand years of Jesus ruling on earth, then the eternal state. The amillennial person says, learn how to read poetry. This is the thousand years. Gee, Satan is bound right now. That's why you're all getting saved. And after this millennium of time, the eternal state is coming. How many people are still with me? Oh, that's good. Yeah, I can't even see the people not raising their hands. So, <laughs> the amillennial person, and I'll be blunt, I, I think the amillennialism person has the hardest time with Isaiah 65 comes to this passage then and says, this is just a poetic way of describing eternal life. Isaiah is trying to give a, a picture of eternal life. So he says, new heaven, new earth, no more tears, and life is going to be really long. And he just puts it in language that people could understand. So, yeah, they're going to die, but don't, don't emphasize that. This is poetry. Look how long they're going to live. And so the amillennial person is seeing things more that way, in a more poetic way. Okay, third view. What's the first one? Second one. Um, the premillennial person. What's the next thing they're looking for in history? Thousand-year reign. Amillennial person. What's the next thing they're looking for in history? The return of Christ. And then the eternal... Where do they both wind up? The eternal state. Here's the post-millennial view. The post-millennial view is similar. Still with me? The post-millennial view is similar to amillennialism, but more optimistic about the power of the gospel to transform cultures. Like amillennialists, many post-millennialists could describe this age we are in as a millennium. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm comfortable with that. It's not exactly a thousand years. It's actually about 2022 so far. But, but it's just a big poetic number for this age. That's the age we're in. Post-millennialism and amillennium could agree on that kind of thing. Though I will tell you this, don't go too far down this. There are some post-millennials who are believing there's a future thousand years coming, like kind of a golden age in the future. But we'll leave that aside. However, post-millennialists believe that during this age, this church age, this age since Jesus died and rose again, the gospel will enjoy a triumph over nations and cultures that in one person's words will transform the world's societies. Many post-millennialists would look at world history and say, not only has Christ transformed, say, the status of women, the principles of government, the value of hospitals and education, Wherever he's been preached, that's happened. But the postmillennialists would say, but someday the transformation will be so amazing that we're going to see longevity of the kind described in Isaiah 65. It's going to be... A thousand years ago, it was weird to live to 80. And the postmillennialist says, there come a day when it'd be strange to die at 100. As the salting and the lighting of the gospel touch more and more cultures and more and more nations, we'll see more and more of those kinds of changes. And then after that, post, thank you, that millennium, Jesus comes back and we are in the eternal state. Now, that's funny. You know, I told this to my kids yesterday and one of, the, one of my kids was like, what am I? <laughs> and I wanted to say, you don't know. You just heard it for the first time. <laughs> I've been preaching for 20 years. This is the first time I've ever done this. So maybe uh, hold your horses there a little bit. Just dive into the Scriptures. Begin to think about these things. As you read through your Bible, begin to piece it together. Uh, if you want to know where I'm at, I'll tell you. 
I'm still at the tentative stage on these issues, and I'd hate to see any divisiveness at Emmanuel on these issues. You should know we have elders serving who hold each of these three positions. But my own study of the Scriptures causes me to lean heavily in a post-millennial view. You're like, does he not know how bad the world is? Oh, I know how bad the world is. I just think it's a lot better than it was 2,000 years ago. The continual prophecies in Isaiah of nations and kings coming to God's king to learn from him, to beat their, plow, to beat their guns into rakes because of him, and to follow him have only increased my sense that God aims to deeply transform our world. Not perfectly, but truly, before he returns and ushers in something we can all agree on, the eternal state. Sixth, and briefly, we will live lives of domestic stability and zero futility. Hey, remember that old sermon I was preaching for comforting Christians? Let's go back there. Jesus came to the earth to bring a new heavens and a new earth, to end distress, to erase haunting memories, to give us exceedingly long life, though we'll, depend, we'll debate where exactly that starts, and also to give us lives of domestic stability and zero futility. Look at verses 21 and 23. <laughs> They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For like the days of a tree shall, be my, shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. One of the marks of God's wrath on the world is that sinners never get to hold on to a family home long. It was actually a curse in the Old Testament. Book of Deuteronomy 27, 28, it said, if you sin, other people who didn't build your houses will live in them. If you sin, you can plant a cucumber all you want. It'll be somebody else who eats it. And that's what happened to Israel. They built up Israel, and the Babylonians got to live there. It's what happened to the Canaanites. They sinned for so many centuries that Israel came in, and they wound up living in houses they did not build and drinking from wells they did not dig. The history of Romania is like this. Throughout the history of Romania, the Turks kept pressing north, taking the crops of the Romanians, keeping them in poverty all throughout their history. Because one of the marks of being in a sinful world is that we're constantly being tossed out of our homes. Think about how many times you may have paid your five or your 50 bucks to go visit the so-and-so home, the so-and-so house. Some rich guy owned a big house and now you're touring it. Why doesn't he live there? Divorce, bankruptcy, civil war, all kinds of things. There's a reason why Downton Abbey is available to be a movie set. Right? It's not completely occupied by the home. But in heaven, it won't be like that. The homes we inhabit in heaven will be ours forever. You'll always be from your place. Always be with your people. If you plant a cucumber in the garden or a tomato in the garden, the deer won't eat it, and uh, the invading hordes next door won't eat it either. Life, this life has so much futility, doesn't it? There's so many things we do. I know people who, for a living, they write research papers no one ever reads. There are teachers in this room who literally teach dozens of students who do not listen to a word they say. We pour kids, we pour into our kids and then hope they'll appreciate the labor we've given for them. But so much is futile but not in heaven, not in heaven. And in fact, not on earth either. Because 1 Corinthians 15 tells us our labor now is not in vain because of the resurrection. Somehow there will be a continuity between what we plant, how we invest in this life 
and what we receive and live amongst in heaven. There's a great continuity between the new heavens and the new earth and this heaven and this earth. One last thing, and then I really will sit down. Heaven will have intimacy with God like you've never known before. Listen to this verse. Verse 24, Before, Behold, they call and I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. You're like, hey, Lord. I know what you want. I got that. Hey, Lord. No, I got that too. But I got that too. But what if, I already thought about it. How different is that than your prayer life now? We, we go on crying out, how long? For years. Decades, things that seem so obvious, like, Lord, isn't it clear I need this now? And he thinks, wait, be patient, cry how long, read the Psalms, heaven will be, Lord, I got it, I got it, I already, I already put it in your bedroom, it's there, just go. <laughs> this is incredible. Some, of you, we, we, you know, people, some people are like that, right? You're like, hey, I was thinking, like, I already thought about it. And I already did it all. And you're like, you're different than me. You're amazing. And here God says, they will call, I will answer while, you're, while they're yet speaking. I will hear. And all of this happens in a place where wolves aren't tearing lambs apart. Lions aren't destroying oxes. The serpent is reduced to the dust. And there's only peace in God's holy mountain. That's why Jesus was born. That's what Christmas is all about. You may have lost loved ones. You may have lost dreams. But that's the hope Christmas brings. It doesn't point us back with nostalgia. But it points us forward to hope in the future. Father, we come before you. We ask you for your grace. That we might have a spirit and a wisdom and a revelation, the knowledge of you, that we might know the hope that lies before us. Bring that home this Christmas season to us. In Jesus' name, amen.